3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Bright and early on a Thursday morning. Yes, it is. Oh, gosh. It is Thursday, the 18th of November. Have to check the phone. (laughs) Have to check the phone. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. We know that much, at least. We know that much. Um, Yeah, I mean... the reason that I think we're a little scattered is because we have an absolutely massive show. Rosie mentioned on Twitter we need to find a new way to say that we have a big show because this is a massive, massive show. Yeah, I feel like oh, I just basically only retweet Priya's tweets about our show and then say it's a big show. So I need to get a new, a new thing. Well, I mean, like you just need a scale of bigness. Okay. Right. So. Um, shall we jump into what we have on for today? Yeah, let's do it. So first, um, I spoke with Pan Karanikolas, a PhD candidate in crime, justice and legal studies at La Trobe University, uh, where they also are involved with organising casual university workers um, and fighting to secure jobs with the La Trobe University Casuals Network. And they're also on the board of Women with Disabilities Victoria. Um, Pan joined me to speak about the impacts of ableist higher education policy and the further implementation of the job-ready graduate package on disabled students and students with chronic illness. We will then be speaking with Professor Sandy O'Sullivan, who is a Widratjuri transgender non-binary person. They are a 2020-2024 ARC Future Fellow with a project titled Saving Lives, Mapping the Influence of Indigenous LGBT." IQ plus creative artists and they will be joining us to talk about trans representation. Yeah, so excited about that. They're absolutely fantastic. Um, and after that, uh, I spoke with Associate Professor Chelsea Watergo earlier this week about her new book, Another Day in the Colony, published by the University of Queensland Press. And Chelsea is a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman whose work has drawn attention to the role of race in the production of health inequalities. And just uh, a language warning for little ears. Uh, this will play at around 7.45 and... There is some, uh, I guess, some colourful language used, but I promise that it is very much contextual to the book. Yeah, and then um, uh, we'll be speaking with Alex Kakafidis, a long-time activist and 3CR broadcaster, currently presenting the Greek Resistance Bulletin. Um, and he's also a member of Solidarity and Defence Fund and joins us this morning to talk about the fund and the importance of building movement infrastructure. And finally, um, and uh, prior to this, a content warning about a discussion of an Aboriginal death in custody, uh, Roxy Moore, who's a Noongar woman and member of the band Spithoods campaign, will join us to speak about the South Australian government's delay with legislating the ban on Spithoods via the Statutes Amendment Spithood Prohibition Bill, otherwise known as Fellas Bill, in line with campaigning for about five years by the family of Wiradjuri, Wurrungu and Kokatha man Wayne Fella Morrison, who died in South Australian uh, prisons custody. Hey you mob, it's time to get back to the community. So get your proof of vaccination ready. 
Get started by creating a MyGov account if you don't already have one and linking your Medicare number. Then add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Now you're ready to go. Your COVID-19 digital certificate is your ticket. Let's show it with kindness to the businesses we visit and the Victorians who run them. Visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash vaxproof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And here are the news headlines for today, the uh, Thursday the 18th of November. So in headlines this week, as many representatives of Indigenous communities and youth delegates declare the recently closed COP26 a failure, climate activists continue to block key bottlenecks in the multi-billion dollar coal supply chain in the Hunter region of New South Wales. Politicians and police have so far been unable to stop the protesters, despite threatening obscure charges that could carry a 25-year sentence. In news in the Northern Territory, COVID-19 fears are being realized for First Nations people in remote communities, as cases in the Catherine and Robinson River clusters continue to grow. Community leaders are worried about areas that have some of the highest rates in the country of homelessness, overcrowded housing, and underlying health issues stemming from poverty. First Nations leaders say there has been a gap in language-appropriate health messaging between February and September this year, resulting in high levels of misinformation that is reportedly fueled by federal backbenchers. In other news, justice advocates have this week criticised a plan formulated by Australia's Attorneys General to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 12 years old. Advocates say the move is a nothing decision that will do little to reduce juvenile detention rates or improve the lives of incarcerated children, including First Nations children who are massively overrepresented in juvenile detention. And finally, hundreds of workers across tall warehouses began an indefinite strike action this week. Workers striking are seeking secure, fairly, fairly paid jobs, saying that they kept the company operating during the height of the COVID-19 crisis and that suppressed wages are not matching increasing costs of living. And these strikes are occurring across Victoria, South Australia and New South Wales, as far as I believe. Yeah, and just to add to those headlines as well, we just wanted to bring listeners' attention uh, to a protest that's happening on Friday night. So the Melbourne Queer Film Festival um, has been called on by Palestinian queer Palestinian activists to uh, remove from its program an Israeli film called The Swimmer, and they have released statements saying they're not going to do that um, and describing their film festival as apolitical. Um, and so in response to that, 
Palestinian activists are calling for people to join them to protest and disrupt the screening of the Sumer, which is happening this Friday, November 19 at 8.30 p.m. at the Jam Factory, 500 Chapel Street, South Yarra. So no pride in apartheid, um, and you can join in solidarity with queer Palestinian activists um, refusing queer liberation being co-opted in this way. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're not able to join that, then please, you know, keep uh, keep speaking up on socials, keep an eye out for anything else that's happening, because at the end of the day, um, pinkwashing Israeli apartheid is uh, something that I think we all need to be calling out. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID to no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and Priya's just um, speaking along to the to the uh, announcements there. We've heard them so many times. Um, so next up, we're going to hear a conversation that I had with Pan Karen Nicholas, a PhD candidate in crime justice and legal studies at La Trobe University and um, someone also involved in organising casual university workers through the La Trobe University Casuals Network, um, as well as being a board member of Women with Disability Victoria. And Pan joined me to speak about the impacts of ableist higher education policy, um, specifically the further implication of the government's job-ready graduate package that came into effect in 2020 and some of the uh, was passed in 2020 and some of the newer um, impacts are coming into effect in 2022 and how this will affect disabled students and students with chronic illness. So um, just to begin, I'd like to first invite you to introduce yourself um, and the work and study that you've done or are doing at university and perhaps just in general what that experience has been for you. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Pam. Um, I use they them pronouns and I'm currently a PhD student and casual academic at La Trobe University. Um, so I live, like, obviously in Nam or Melbourne. Um, and my undergraduate degrees I did I did a combined Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Laws um, in Sydney on Gadigal country so I was uh, first in my family to go to university um, like I said I did a, a BA and an LLB so and then I did my honours um, in politics and international studies at Melbourne University so I think that for me that was like six years of full-time study um, and since then, like I said, I'm now a casual academic. Um, I'm doing a PhD. Yeah, I guess that's like an overview of, of my study and where I am now. I guess some of the things we wanted to talk about today were related to um, the Job Ready Graduate Package, which came 
um, into law in 2020. But we're just going to go through a few of those things and um, get your thoughts on them. So the federal government will reintroduce the student learning entitlement in 2022. So that's next year. And this entitlement, as far as I understand, means that students will have a maximum of seven years to complete their undergraduate degree um, in a Commonwealth-supported place. So there was a recent article in the Australian Financial Review um, which reported on this and talked about how it will affect medical students, but um, many students and others have pointed out this will have serious implications for disabled students, students with chronic and mental illness, students you know, who don't have financial support or who have other caring responsibilities, those sorts of things. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about this change and how you see it impacting access to tertiary education and how it may have impacted you during your undergraduate studies. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I found a real paucity of information about what this is going to mean for students from kind of those, like, more marginalised backgrounds. From what I could tell in, like, the little kind of looking at this I've done, the focus has been around... Um, medical students and a potential shortage um, on doctors and things like that in the future. But um, I think, yeah, like what this would have meant for me, so like I said, my degrees would have meant um, six years in total, and, and for me that involved taking leave of absences when I became sick due to my disability and when I like a part of my um, studies where I was hospitalised, so, and that couldn't work as a result, so um, I took a leave of absence, but um, and that was, you know, in my circumstance, I was able to get a disability support pension. Um, for many people, uh, since like 2013, uh, 2015, there have been reforms to the DSP, um, which make it really um, hard to get onto. So even just like, depending on what my circumstances were, had I been going through this at a different time, I may not have gotten onto the DSP, mm-hmm. and I might have had to drop down my my course units to um, just to stay um, stay connected to the university, stay enrolled and things like that. <clears throat> and so it, my study could easily have stretched out to be, um, you know, more than six years. So I can definitely see this impacting students who um, uh, have disabilities or uh, might have caring responsibilities or, you know, any other, you know, a life experience that means your study is interrupted um, or potentially, I'm not even quite sure of this, but, um, you know, unenrolling from a course and enrolling in a different course, um, which is a thing that I'm sure is like, quite common. <laughs> um, it's not clear to me how that's going to impact those um, groups of people. Totally. I think that that is a really good point that um, firstly, like illness and disability aren't necessarily things that we can predict or can plan for. Sometimes things just happen and there's no getting around it. Um, And yeah, like you say, if there's other uh, services or um, financial services or aren't, aren't accessible to people, it can be kind of have a massive impact. That kind of connects as well to the next question that I wanted to ask. So another one of these measures is um, the, about the low completion rate. So that will also come into effect next year. And basically this means that if students fail more than 50% of their units across eight units, then they will, again, no longer be eligible for CSP or Commonwealth Supported Places or fee help loans. Um so I was wondering how this rule, in combination with that student 
learning entitlement might impact students? And do you see this as tied to the government's approach to higher education more broadly? I think like from the outset, we've this, I remember this happening a while ago. Um, if someone is failing like 50% of their unit, they need support clearly or um, yeah, they need some kind of tailored um, support uh, rather than to be penalised by you know, being made ineligible for a Commonwealth supported place. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, research, what we do know is that disabled students are already at a greater risk of not completing their studies or have higher attrition rates. And that's not because, like, disabled students or students with illnesses or uh, medical conditions or um, mental health issues um, are bad students. It's that, you know, universities are often inaccessible environments and um, people need support. Um, and, and accessibility provisions and reasonable adjustments to um, stay enrolled and to complete their degrees. So I think what, like what this is about is really, um, you know, like these decisions are coming from a Liberal government. It's about um, sending a signal to, um, you know, people who come from marginalised backgrounds that there's a time limit for you or, you you know, if you don't um, get the support you need, you, you know, you're going to have to drop out or... Um, you're going to be forced to make some kind of decision and, and sending the message that um, this is not the place um, for you. Um, I come from a kind of paternalism, I think, and and as well, I think, kind of coming into this is that uh, students with disabilities are more likely to be at smaller universities and um, less wealthy universities where they're potentially less likely to get the support that they need um, as well. So... I think it's about the message that it sends to, to students with disabilities um, before they involve. Totally. And this can, I mean, this is a, you know, like these are intimidating institutions as it is. It's not as if everyone feels like, oh, they, they can easily rock up to a university or enroll and feel comfortable in that space. And these kinds of messages coming from the government and kind of um, have, have an impact in terms of the stress that they put students under as well. Like, um, if you fail this many subjects, this was what hap- will happen to you. That, that can only kind of increase the stress and pressure that students are facing. That's so, totally right. And, like, we are already in a position where I think, I think the target for most universities or, um, so there isn't actually a lot of collaboration between higher education policy and disability policy at a, like a national level. And I think that kind of comes back to how little disabled people are thought of in, in policy, but also this idea that, um, you know, we shouldn't even be working towards enrolling more and, and keeping more students with disabilities um, in higher education. Um, we should be thinking of programs and, you know, um, schemes that, um, enrol people in scholarships and rather than penalising people for, for not um, being supported or um, having made, potentially made a, a choice that they at university that they um, are not enjoying or, you know, all these things that happen to people, um, the, the, the focus is totally wrong. But, you know, it's because it comes from a, you know, a Dan Tan and um, it's part of these broader higher ed reforms which are just typical from the Liberals. Yeah, well, speaking about those reforms, um, yeah, as we said, that they were passed in 2020 and people would, listeners would remember that um, they also included an increase in student contribution for courses like arts um, and law degrees. So your your undergraduate degree specifically would have been much more expensive. Um, 
And while there haven't been a decrease in enrolments in these areas um, this year, so following that increase, um, it does mean that students will be graduating with really large hex debts. Um, and, you know, we can see a theme building here around who is impacted by these changes. But what what do you, as, as someone who's kind of continued with academia and um, is working as a, a casual academic, like what does it mean for students to be leaving with these incre- increased hex debts? Oh, totally. Um, I am the perfect candidate for this interview because I, yeah, I did a law and an arts degree. And, um, yeah, it's left me with quite a lot of hex debt. Um, and, well, we know that, you know, students make decisions about what they want to study at university largely based off of interest. So I think, yeah, that's definitely true that the interest in arts degrees doesn't, um, uh, with these kind of reforms, it doesn't necessarily impact um, the enrolment. So, but if in terms of disability, like we know the stats are that it takes graduates with disabilities 61.5% longer to find um, full-time employment after graduating than non-disabled students. So, um, you're going to have students that are graduating with higher levels of debt and still, um, you know, you know, that with disabilities, like entering the workforce is still much harder. Um, they're going to potentially be unemployed for longer after they've finished their degree. But also we know um, it's so connected to our experience of the workforce, which involves um, discrimination right up at like, the very level of applying for jobs while you're in jobs, um, not being able to access what the Disability Discrimination Act calls reasonable adjustments. And we're just more, much more likely to be in casualised or temporary and insecure work. All of it is connected. Um, students with disabilities are definitely going to be um, much worse off. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you were kind of speaking to it there and also earlier in the interview mentioning the ways, like we've seen in the pandemic, the ways that disabled people have been left out or ignored in policy decisions around things like the vaccine rollout um, and opening up roadmaps. And we've spoken quite a lot on the program about ableism in that space with people like Elle Gibbs. Um, these changes to university student study conditions and also their funding conditions, um, as well as, you know, continued casualisation and the precarity of the university workforce. It just all seems to share this dis- disregard and ignorance of the experience of um, disability in an ableist world. And I'm wondering if you could speak to the neoliberal university a bit through through that lens. Mm. Yeah, it's such an interesting question to reflect upon because, you know, the kind of the reforms that um, over the last couple of decades that have led to increased privatisation of, of the university, um, it's also been a period of, the, like, massification of higher education. And in during this, these times, the last, say, 30 years, like, um, more disabled people are actually going to university um, than in the past, in, you know, in the 80s, only 7% of Australians had a degree, but today it's about 33% of the um, working age population. Um, and, it, yeah, I mean, universities remain extremely ableist environments. Um, uh, and I think a, a huge factor in this um, is, a, you know, not only like a, an institutional model that is very deficit-based around um, disability, um, 
you know, and whether stigma still operates. So a lot of students may not even be um, disclosing that they have a disability because they don't think it's going to necessarily help them. And I was definitely in that category mm. um, of students. Um, but yeah, so in a context where, you know, less and less um, government funding is given to universities, the less that they're seen as a public good um, and with increased privatisation and um, casualisation, this directly impacts like students. So I think like, a really great example of this is when I was doing my undergraduate, uh, there was a restructure and um, funding was ripped out of the disability um, inclusion portfolio. We used, uh, we used to have a program at um, UNSW where um, other students, undergraduate students, would be employed um, for students with disabilities who had uh, particular disabilities where they needed um, note-taking support. And um, what, what the result of um, that, that restructure and those cuts and the funding being taken away from that portfolio was that this would then become a volunteering opportunity <laughs> for mm. other students. And um, that it just meant that those students who needed that support didn't get it. So I think that we cannot fail to consider the neoliberalisation of universities as a key aspect in how impacting um, at students on the ground. You may know, have less access to support um, because they're in classes that are much bigger and their tutors are casuals who don't get paid for that work, but of course do it anyway. Um, so it's all deeply connected, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I did want to finish on a positive note. Just as a, a, a member of Kapow and, and a university uh, PhD student, I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to what fair access to university education um, would look like for you and why you believe it's important. Mm. I think it would look like schemes that not only focus on access to universities for students with disabilities and from like multiply marginalised backgrounds, but the support to retain retain them is there all throughout their, their time at university and that um, the people that are involved in teaching them and um, supporting them, so professional staff, are actually organised and running their own workplaces and they have a say in what's happening and that it's not uh, organised around competition and profit seeking, it's actually organised around research and education. And I think it would involve students having a real voice for strong student unions um, as well. Um, that's sort of my my vision that I think is possible and I think you know, mm. Kapow would also um, think along those lines. Yeah, well, thank you so much um, for sharing that vision and also just talking talking through some of these um, changes that are going to come into effect in 2022. And thank you for being on the program this morning, Pam. No, thank you so much. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was a conversation that Rosie had with Pan Nicholas earlier in the week. Pan is a PhD candidate in crime, justice and legal studies at La Trobe University, where they're also involved with organizing casual university workers and fighting to secure jobs with the La Trobe University Casuals Network. And they're also a board member of Women with Disabilities Victoria. Pan joined us to speak about the impacts of ableist higher education policy and the further implementation of the job-ready graduate package on disabled students and students with chronic illness. We're going to go to a track now, and this 
actually dropped this morning. Uh, this is a new one from Electric Fields Gold Energy. Listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we just heard a wonderful track called Gold Energy by Electric Fields. And we will now be jumping into an interview with the incredible Professor Sandy O'Sullivan, who is a Wiratjuri person, and they are a 2020 2024 ARC Future Fellow with a project titled Saving Lives 
mapping the influence of Indigenous LGBTIQ plus creative artists. And they are joining us this morning to talk a bit more about trans representation. Good morning, Sandy. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Really, really excited to have you joining us. Um, I guess to start off, could you please introduce yourself for listeners? Uh, sure. Um, so I'm a, a Wiradjuri transgender non-binary person. Um, I'm a professor of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University in Sydney. Um, I'm actually here on Kavi Kavi land at the moment in um, Brisbane where I live. Um, I work in the Department of Indigenous Studies and across the new Centre for Global Indigenous Futures. We focus on queerness as a part of our way of um, contemplating our present and our future, and of course our past. Of course. Thank you for that little intro. And it, um, this week, um, you've written a series of tweets in relation to Trans Awareness Week, and it's a resource for community as well as a set of prompts, a way to counter myths with truths. What prompted you to create and share this online? I think it was a few things. Um, one is, as, as a lot of uh, trans people and trans allies know, um, there's a lot of um, misunderstandings uh, that, that occur and the whole idea of Trans Awareness Week is to um, make people more aware of our realities rather than the kind of way that our identity gets constructed by others. And so I get a lot of misgendering, for instance. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm a non-binary person and, uh, and people will often want to push into the binary. So a lot of it was really... Um, incredibly self-centered, but it's also centered on this idea of, um, of, of kind of contemplating how complex we all are and, uh, and providing a measure of how to treat people, I guess. Mm, the complexity is really evident in all the different points you make, and I guess that leads into my next question. Like one of the points that you made that I really sat was, sat with was, it's the ultimate successful colonial project, isn't it? The idea that a person can be wholly one thing and wholly another thing is everyone's truth, but the colonial project only allows you to be one thing at a time, as though that's even possible. What has it meant for you to journey with your whole truth and identity? Oh, well, it's a really funny thing. I think um, anyone who anyone who's listening knows what this is, you know, that, that you can't always be all of one thing and you shouldn't have to only be all of one thing. So the, the example is I often get treated as uh, as an Aboriginal academic and a trans academic, not necessarily as an Aboriginal trans academic. Um, so even in the context of my work, people find the context of those two identity markers, you know, not even thinking about the actual work I do, um, as somehow inconsistent with one another. And of course, they're not. They're consistent in our bodies. Like, we all have lots of things that make us up. And, you know, if those things are seen as a little bit different to the rest of the population, people really struggle with contemplating how they're connected. And, of course, the reason I say it's the Colonial Project is the Colonial Project is about putting people in boxes. Yes. Um, sometimes literally. And, you know, certainly one of the things that's, that this challenges is those ideas. You know, I'm 55. A lot of people will say non-binary people are young. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> you know, so uh, they're the kinds of examples. And I mean, you know, it's it, it's absolutely incredibly important that we misbust those things because otherwise we just don't see and sometimes we erase the people who are actually there. 
Mm, it's contradicting assumptions made by a community to like showcase everyone's identities and everyone's experience um, through this yeah. as well. And, and I guess a key theme across the points was also around erasure of trans identity, particularly as a result of the colonial project. Why was it important to you to why was it important to you to identify these different points of erasure through this medium? Oh, uh, look, you know, I just um, yesterday I started a series of tweets around um, around the way that researchers just don't even bother about uh, picking up the diversity of gender. And, you know, so that they narrow the lens and narrow the lens so much, they narrow who they're including so much that uh, that you actually start to miss, for instance, uh, when you look at Indigenous populations, gender diversity within those Indigenous populations that have existed for thousands of years. You know, so that it, it really is about saying, don't erase that, you know, to reduce us every time you come in and study us uh, is is not a thing, you know. It's not something that's going to help uh, us understand the complexity of our den- identities and also listen to it. Mm. Uh, you know, it's a it's it might seem like a really fundamental basic thing, but it's not necessarily happening. And I mean, we just had the uh, ABS just had the uh, you know the Australian Census that absolutely didn't include anyone outside of the binary uh, and asked us to force ourselves into the binary as an example. Didn't talk about trans people who are binary gendered, so men and women who are trans, didn't find a way to be able to capture that. So as a result, we actually don't know very much, you know, and of course the census is this kind of colonial structure of um, counting people. Yeah, and unfortunately, like, those statistics are used to justify different projects and different, like, proposals, and if we don't have the correct data which represents people's actual identities, then... What is the point? Hey, um, you know we we don't know any of that. So yeah, mm, and yeah, that's so true. And I guess also, could you tell us a bit more about your current project, um, which is titled "Saving Lives: Mapping the Influence of Indigenous LGBTIQ plus Creative Artists." <laughs> so it's an interesting one because "Saving Lives" is both about that idea. You know, the project looks at the unique contribution and influence of creative artists. So basically so that we can understand how telling complex identities contributes to the well-being of First Nations people. So it's, so it's looking at how it grows our understanding of ourselves. But it's also that idea that in saving, you know, so absolutely it's about well-being, it's about finding a place, but it's and locating the place that we're at and place that we're going to be uh, at in the future as well. But it's also about remembering all of these wonderful um creative practitioners who have made work for decades and generations before us um, who have done this remarkable work and just making sure that it, that it doesn't get erased. Mm. So it's saving in that way. Mm, it's saving and honouring and, like, passing it on. Um, yeah. And for people or listeners that are interested in following your work, where can they keep up to date with all of your wonderful musings and ideas and thoughts? Yeah, definitely Twitter. <laughs> so, um, so, so Twitter and Facebook I've been um, using, and I think social media is a great platform for it. You know, I, I'm, obviously researchers have to write things for publication so that people understand, so that government takes notice, so that there is a way to be able to you know, progress ideas. 
fundamentally, um, research should be, you know, for people. Um, and, and so we, you know, I tend to disseminate in, um, and, and make the information known in that space. But we've got a whole lot of public outings of the work too, because it's creative practice, right? You know, so we're actually going to be seeing some creative work out of this. Yeah, no. Thank you so much for joining us um, this morning and sharing your story. And for ev- for listeners that are interested, definitely check out their tweets. It was a really wonderful series of musings and thoughts and mythbusters as well. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dr. Professor Sandy O'Sullivan. Thanks so much. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we just um, wrapped up an interview with Professor Sandy O'Sullivan, who is a Rotary transgender non-binary person. They are a 2020-2024 ARC Future Fellow with a project titled Saving Lives, Mapping the Influence of Indigenous LGBTIQ plus Creative Artists, and they joined us this morning to talk a bit about trans representation. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And yeah, you were just listening to that amazing interview with Professor Sandy O'Sullivan. I can't encourage people enough to go look at their tweets if you want to get a really good picture of the kind of amazing research they're doing. Obviously, engage with their research too, but um, just the incredibly complex conversations that they're having around the colonial project of gender and yeah it it means a lot to myself as um as a non-binary person in the colony to to see that kind of um discussion being amplified and you know to have people modeling these kinds of conversations um it's just so important and yeah i think it's trans day of uh what is it is it Remembrance, I think I, I, I always get it wrong because I think about Trans Day of Remembrance as Trans Day of Revenge and Trans Day of Visibility is Trans Day of Vengeance. So I always get it messed up in my head, but I believe it is um, 
It's revenge uh, this weekend. Anyway, we're going to go into an interview that I did with uh, Associate Professor Chelsea Watergo earlier in the week. And Chelsea is a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman whose work has drawn attention to the role of race in the production of health inequalities. And she's a founding member of Inala Wangara, an Indigenous Community Develop Associ- Development Association within her community and a director of the Institute for Collaborative Race Research. And Chelsea joined me to speak about her incredible new book, Another Day in the Colony, published by the University of Queensland Press. So just a language warning again um, for little ears. Uh, Towards the second half of the interview, there will be some colorful language, uh, but this is very much within the context of what is in the book. So we'll go to that interview now. Chelsea, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. So Before we get into a discussion about your amazing new book, Another Day in the Colony, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself in a little more detail? Sure. So my name is Chelsea Wadigo, formerly Chelsea Bond, Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman, um, mum of five kids. Um, I'm a professor of Indigenous Health at the Queensland University of Technology. I'm a director of the Institute for Collaborative Race Research and a board member of Anala Wongara. And I'm an author of Another Day in the Colony. I really like the fact that all of those things come together in in Another Day in the Colony. Um, it's very much a situated and placed book, uh, which is something that you talk about in the introduction, that you're writing from a place. And it really weaves together memoir and manifesto, but embodied sovereign theorizing on race and colonization as well. And I was hoping that you could tell us a bit about what it's meant to you to write against colonial possession in this way and the importance of sovereign storytelling, which you talk about coming from Romaine Morton. I really enjoy um, writing, but it's the thinking that I get to do in the course of writing. And most of the stuff I write about comes from a place of trying to grapple with some stuff and make sense of things. What I loved in telling the stories in the book was the way in which Everyday stories of blackfellas were foreground as a way to understand this world. And one example is Sister Eula Monklin, who was at the launch party on uh, that we had, who was so excited to be the conclusion in this book. And, you know, the everyday stories of blackfellas that uh, I was able to share and that they gave me permission to share with and to think about. And it was so nourishing for me to bring those stories into conversation rather than try and find a way for me to, you know, recite other theorists and, and do the wanky academic thing that so many do and, and, and that we're supposed to do. So there was great joy in bringing our full selves into this story and even though it was written from a place where I was felt really broken at the time, yeah, it's it's a weird thing to go that was actually a really joyful experience to be able to tell our stories on our own terms. And I was just very fortunate to have such great guidance around me um, from a lot of people that just, yeah, made me feel stronger in what I was doing, held me accountable, and yet took the time to actually think with me. And, and just seeing how, when seeing some of the, some of the mob who had, you know, told their story and watching them read it back, and see that how they were represented. Like it's it's such a good feeling to be able to remind people how you know deadly they are. Yeah, I'm really proud of that. That so clearly comes through. It's really an homage to Black Beauty, love, joy, resistance, and it's also very much a book 
that is grounded in relational thinking. It's very much in conversation with all of the people whose stories come through the book. And yeah, I was wondering if you could speak a little more about how relationality and being in community has informed the way that you write. Writing from a place of knowing who you are, where you come from, and, and remembering that and staying true to that is so important. And I, I just, you know, I always talk about the stories at our own kitchen table and, you know, I experience the disjunction between the stories told about us and the stories told by us and no longer accept that explanation that it's something that we're lacking that explains the disjuncture. There is a violent function to the fictions that they write about us. But to know that truth means to be in conversation with each other and to check in with each other. And this, I, I was really conscious about people not think I'm trying to universalise my experience either, that I'm just sharing through a story um, as a part of showing my workings and in conversation with other people, that it's, you know, this idea of this kind of the individual knower who can know to claim and to climb. What I hope that I was able to do in the course of this is model a kind of anti-racist practice for those writing about race, that our stories are not for the taking, for you to theorise and to know better than us. Um, you know, we had this big fight this year around what those scholars did to uh, Chris Rella Baker's story. They took it from him when he was speaking on his country and pretended to know it better than what he could. And he again features in the book in conversation with him to be able to speak about him who are we to speak about someone else's story without being in relationship with them? And so I, I hope to model the kind of practice that we want to see is that, you know, racial violence is not something that you get to extract and theorise about and know better than us. And, you know, I've learned about race through my conversations and experiences with other blackfellas. Our responses to it, um, whether it's sitting on the sidelines at a football match in country Queensland, you know, or the phone call from Uncle Vern after doing Wild Black Woman, the everydayness of this stuff. And, and we have a responsibility to, when we are speaking, to be honest about how we come to know and to act with care with people's stories. They're not free for the taking. And I think that's one of the, my, I think the challenges with some of the anti-racist work is this idea that Victims of racial violence are in need of saving and through knowing their experience better than them and taking it from them, I don't know how else to do this work if not in relationship with the very people that we're supposed to be speaking with and for and to. Yeah, of course. And the way that you write and, uh, you know, weave in people's stories, it shows that everyone's theorising and everyone's engaging in critical theorising about how they move through the world. I've got a bit of a gripe around how we speak about lived experience, the way in which you can get weaponized as well as the way in which you can get dismissed. You know, it's I have a love-hate relationship with some of the discourse around lived experience. And so I'm not suggesting that, you know, you have to have lived everything in order to speak about anything, but you have to be in relationship with that which you speak of. And there's an ethics of practice around how we are in relationship. And so it means citing those conversations, those mundane moments, and recognising that our people are theorists, our artists, our rappers, like, they're everywhere. We're thinking about this world, trying to make sense of it, using different ways to make sense of it. I write op-eds and sometimes do research and do this stuff. Some people write songs and plays and all kinds of things, all theorising. And um, sometimes I feel like, you know, I haven't cited enough scholars in the book, but I'm like, no, I have. They're there, they're named. They're just not as well known as those who are recognised as knowers in the academy. And I, I hope that other black fellows, uh, black academics, 
see the importance and possibilities of the different places in which black thinking exists and not continue to uphold, you know, the violent kind of system that we operate in and, you know, including the, what happened with the Feminist Law Journal. It shows that we're kept out of that role of knower even when we've met all the requirements on their terms of what it is to know and, you know, met the highest standard but still will will keep us out. And so I hope that it shows people the possibility of messing with the rules that they insist we adhere to. Yeah, because this book definitely doesn't read like a reaction. The writing is very proactive in terms of asserting sovereignty and asserting a particular way of engaging in critical thinking that is profoundly relational rather than saying, you know, they say this, but we know that. It's more just we know this. Yeah. And I was really interested in the way that you wrap up with uh, Chapter 6, Fuck Hope, where you make the case for nihilism and you kind of break down the function of hope for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in a settler colonial or colonial settler state. And as we sort of bring the conversation to a close, could you tell us a bit about nihilism and truth and the way that you speak about those in relation to one another? Yeah, so it's um, the, an idea articulated by Paul Beattie in The Sellout when he speaks about the final stage of blackness as unmitigated blackness. Um, and he's like, I don't know what it is. It's the serious actor. It's a night in jail. It's, you know, and, and he concludes sometimes it's the meaninglessness of it all that makes life worth living. And I guess what I um, wanted to do is make a case for retiring hope as a strategy for surviving in the colony. And a lot of us have lived in hope, have bought into the idea of hope, you know, of the brand new day, a new dawn breaking, the promised land transcending this all. And it's the realisation that that's never going to happen because they're never leaving. Some people think that that's then, you know, irresponsible or whatever. I, I... Hope has betrayed blackfellas so many times, so many times. I've seen too many broken blackfellas betrayed by hope. And what I'm suggesting as an alternative to hope is remembering who the fuck you are and where you come from, is to be sovereign. Just act on our terms, not wait for a future moment to arrive for us, but just be as we always have and always will be. If we know the truth of this place in all of its ugliness, in all of its violence, then maybe we'll strategize better in a way that better protects blackfellas in the course of the fight. Some people think that it's, it's scary to think of the idea that the fight is never ending. And, yeah, of course that's hard to accept, but we all get to that point at some stage in our life where we realize how fucked up it all is. What I'm suggesting is let's be proactive on this. Let's, let's just all get on the same page. And we work from that basis. And the freedom it affords blackfellas there's something so beautiful about it. You know, Eula Monkland's story when she realised that it was all fucked and what she then did and how she carries herself, that speaks to the power of being sovereign because our power exists within us. It's not found in their verdicts or their validation and I'm just really excited to see the ways in which blackfellas enact embody that. I mean, this is not new. I haven't come up with a new idea. I'm just pointing out in those moments to see how really powerful we can be when we act on our own terms. And that was helped by Annie Lilla Watson in my own fight. When I was in my pursuit of winning, she called me out on it because I was still trying to win on their terms. And um, that was when I felt strong and I and then I got called. So, yeah, in, in retiring hope, I'm not suggesting it's hopeless. 
in fact, I'm reminding us of how powerful we really are. Yeah, you've just done such a brilliant job of balancing that line between, you know, making sure that you're not writing about nihilism as pessimistic, um, but also, you know, really galvanizing people with that, the way that you bring the book to a close and you're writing to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and that love comes to you so strongly at the end, but also all through the book. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? I think just uh, there's, I mean, this has come about through a lot of thinking, a lot of conversation with the blackfellas who have been betrayed by institutions that claim to care for us and lots of conversations that can't make the book because they're, you know, private conversations where people have come to me at a time where they felt broken because they, they suddenly came to realise that, you know, who they laboured for actually didn't care about us. And so a lot of people have paid the price for the learnings that I share in the book that can't be named because of that's where that's their journey. But in writing this, I was always thinking about the souls of blackfellas in the course of the writing and what I needed to hear at times, um, what, I, what I've had to tell other people at times. And it's been so overwhelming being able to see the response from blackfellas in reading this book. And it's funny because people who are not familiar with kind of our life world stuff feel like it's a tragic story and unless like you know overwhelmed by how bad it is then seeing the response of blackfellas reading it and what they get the feeling they get from it and the thinking around it that's been just really overwhelming and really exciting to be able to to do that for more than yeah um it's made me think more about the work that i continue to do and how i continue to focus on being of service to mob intellectually and, and politically and culturally well, I mean, the reception of the book is an absolute testament to, you know, to the way that you've put those principles into practice in the way that you write. Where can people find the book? It's online on a range of different supplies, like from UQP to Booktopia, I think Dimmix, Angus and Roberts. Um, if you just Google Love Day in the Colony, there's various places you can buy it online. We did go into second reprint with just over a week after it came out, so there may be a slight delay. But, um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us about the book and all the best with the rest of the book touring. I know that there's still a bit more to go, but I really encourage people to go out and get a copy. Thank you for having me. I believe we're going to be having um, a party in Nam in the new year. I think Nayuka and Paul are onto it, so I can't wait to come down and celebrate Black Joy. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Hi, 
I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Twenty Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. Twenty Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach, and I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on twenty years of listening to our mobs on the inside, as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and it is just gone 8.01 in the morning. And you just heard an interview with Associate Professor Chelsea Watergo, who's a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman and whose work has drawn attention to the role of race in the production of health inequalities. And Chelsea spoke with me earlier in the week about her new book, Another Day in the Colony, which is published by the University of Queensland Press and really encourage people to go out and get a copy if they can. Um, Chelsea did mention that, um, you know, the book's gone into reprint, I think, a couple of times now, which is just incredible it went into reprint in its first week um, of publication and it's just um yeah it's just an incredible read and there i think are lessons in there for for everyone so really yeah just (laughs) just want more people to get out and read it it's it's amazing um so now we're going to go to a track this is milkamana by king stingray Yeah, yeah. 
You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, and you just heard Milkamana by King Stingray, and then Legacy Part 2 by Birds featuring Missy Higgins. And up next, we're speaking with Alex Kakafikas, a longtime activist and 3CR broadcaster, currently presenting the Greek Resistance Bulletin on 3CR. Um, he's also a member of the Solidarity and Defence Fund and is joining us this morning to talk about the fund and the importance of building movement infrastructure. Welcome, Alex. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Um, I just wondering if you could give us a brief introduction to the Solidarity and Defence Fund, what you do and um, how the fund got started. Well, uh, with the Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically run um, solidarity fund to support activists who need help covering fines, uh, getting legal representation for trouble that they find themselves in for their political work. We contribute to strike funds, important mutual aid initiatives, things like that. 
um, and we're completely run online. Um, and we also, an important part of it is that we invite all financial contributors to become participants in the fund, to take part in collectively making decisions and in the functioning of the fund as well. Yeah, great. Um, I was wondering as well, so you are talking about the work that you do in terms of supporting strike actions and um, supporting mm. um, comrades who find themselves in difficult situations in terms of political action. Would you be able to speak briefly about some of the um, actions you have supported over the years and also just how important it is for this kind of fund um, to allow for people to continue these fights against injustice? Well, we've helped lots of different groups, but we can say that the, the most recent one we've um, fund we've contributed to was the um, we've given some money to the strike fund for workers at the Geelong Regional Libraries who are staging a 24-hour strike today as part of their campaign for better wages and conditions. And um, beyond them, uh, we've given uh, near, just under $50,000 to different groups with um, people involved in anti-fascist actions, um, in sort of refugee struggles, Indigenous struggles, um, in um, actions connected to climate. Um, I could just, yeah, in specific struggle, we've um, helped, yeah, with union strike funds, with individual fines for people charged um, with personal payment orders. Um, we've uh, helped pay the, the legal representation for Flemington public housing residents facing charges from the Mala Yiannopoulos protest from a few years ago. Mm. Um, also, we've helped some mutual aid initiatives supporting undocumented migrants. It was a fundraiser that was on last year, at the start of lockdown. And we've also given money to the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy as well. Um, in terms of its importance, um, well, I think right now we've seen it's, it's sort of movement infrastructure, as we call it, is really, really important right now. It's what we should be kind of putting our resources and, and kind of energies towards and building our own support networks, our own media like 3CR, um, and ones that are actually as democratic and participatory as the sort of world we want to build um, is, is a really important thing. I mean, um, we all put a lot of energy into thinking of the sort of correct political lines um, into kind of important, and they're important things as well. I'm not saying that we should stop doing those, but that right now with all the different sort of problems we face, we're seeing um, yeah, kind of issues connected to the climate crisis, um, and it's been sort of a long time of people engaging in decentralised political action that kind of building a wider movement sort of infrastructure that supports this and that sort of contributes to the wider, we call it political ecology, is really important. Yeah, well, you can also see how, you know, um, making a decision to, uh, you know, be in an arrestable position or um, take particular strike action would be much more possible um, and achievable for people if they are able to know that they have a community and, and financial support as well to rest back on. Um, so you can, it can, it kind of does uh, also just, yeah, give people um, the confidence to feel like they are going to be supported um, in taking action against injustice. Yeah, and the knowledge that they're not alone in anything, that it's sort of like there's different roles for different institutions and people in struggle and um, mm. and kind of supporting people materially is a really important one. Totally. Um, no one should be financially ruined or um, or face caught with kind of without any sort of adequate legal help because um, and, and, and ruin them because um, because there's no sort of institutions in place to sort of 
help them out. I think that's something that we try to fill and that we'd like to grow and continue to sort of do. Yeah, well, on that, I was wondering if you could let listeners know um, where they can find out more about and join the fund and also perhaps where organisers um, can get in contact with you if they are needing financial support. Yeah, um, so with, you can look up stuff online at Solidarity and Defence Fund. has a Twitter feed and a, a Facebook group um, where you're kind of easily found there. We also have a Patreon is where you kind of sign up to um, to join. That uh, If you look up Patreon with Solidarity and Defence Fund, you should be able to find it there. Um, contributors who pledge $5 a, a month are invited to join the online group and participate in decision-making, and it's in that decision-making platform where you can um, propose um, causes and people to support. Great. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. Thanks so so much for uh, showing interest. And just then I spoke with Alex Kakafikas, a long-time activist and 3CR broadcaster, um, and we were talking about the Solidarity and Defence Fund, of which he is a member, and you can find out more by searching Solidarity and Defence Fund on Facebook or on Patreon. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55 a.m., and it has just gone past 8.16 in the morning. And uh, now, before we get into this conversation, um, I do want to provide a content warning for listeners. We will be discussing uh, Aboriginal death in custody. Um, So Roxy Moore, who's a Noongar woman and member of the Ban Spithoods campaign, is speaking with us about the South Australian government's delay with legislating the ban of Spithoods via the Statutes Amendment Spithood Prohibition Bill, otherwise known as Fellas Bill, in line with campaigning by the family of Wiradjuri, Wurungu and Kokatha man Wayne Fellamore. Morrison. Roxy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about this long fight for justice that the family of Wayne Fellow Morrison have been engaged in and um, sort of what came out of the wrapping up of the coronial inquest, even though the report hasn't been handed down yet? Mm -hmm. So Latoya Rule and their mother, Annie Carolyn, um, Wayne Fella Morrison's family have been fighting for justice for Fella for five long years. So 26th of September this year marked five years since Fella, who was a loving father, artist and fisherman, died in custody from causes including asphyxia after he was forced into a spearhood by a number of um, prison guards and put face down into a prison van. Um, He um, 
was in there for three minutes. Um, there's no CCTV footage of what happened and um, he never woke up. And this is absolutely devastating for his family. Um, that has been five long years that they've been fighting for justice for Fella. And it's really important to them that Spithoods are banned in um, South Australia in all contexts permanently by law so that it can't be changed and so that no other family has to go through this horror that they've experienced. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it's just been appalling in light of, you know, several... Uh, tragic recent deaths of Aboriginal people in custody across this country, you know, even after there have been calls from families, including uh, Wayne Feller Morrison's, for the Prime Minister to meet with them and actually have a national discussion about, you know, the the normalisation of deaths of Aboriginal people in custody. Can you contextualise some of... Um, some of Wayne Fellow Morrison's family's fight within the broader fight to end Aboriginal deaths in custody and transform the carceral system? Yeah, so it's absolutely just devastating for families um, how many Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people continue to be killed at the hands of a racist justice system by police and prisons um, in this country. It's been... 30 years since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Death in Custody and yet governments are not doing anything about this. We've seen, um, you know, my heart goes out to the families who've just had um, their loved one in New South Wales fatally shot by police Um, and we've only recently seen um, JC's um, murder trial of the police officer um, involved in fatally shooting her um, being acquitted. And so there's really no justice in the colony um, at this point and we need to see um, we need to see us, you know, chipping away at the carceral practices of this colony piece by piece and that's how the Band Spit Hoods campaign and um, Fellas family see this as a kind of abolitionist project about banning spit hoods so that we are making sure that, um, you know, that that this violence and the, that this racism ends. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's really difficult in terms of accountability because in Fellas' case, um, there have been, you know, seven um, guards who were um, involved in um, Wayne's death and um, they have refused to give evidence. And so it's absolutely been horrific for his family to have to sit there and listen to the word privilege over 1,600 mm-hmm. times in the coronial. And they've had to hear the phrase, I don't recall from all of these prison guards almost 600 times. So they've refused to give evidence. They've refused to, um, you know, allow Annie Carolyn and Latoya and their family to get closer to the truth about what happened to Fella and get justice for Fella. And now this latest situation um, means that even though that Fella's bill to ban spithoods for good um, was passed unanimously by the upper house in um, in South Australia, and the government told. Fella's family that this would be um, passed through the lower house like immediately afterwards. It's now been two months and this is the last sitting day um, in South Australia before the election Um, and we have to get it done today. Um, Mm -hmm. So we really need everyone to get behind the family to 
call for this injustice to end and for them to pass Sellers' bill and ban spithoods. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this bill is currently in the in the carriage of uh, the South Australian Attorney General Vicky Chapman. And um, could you tell us about how people can support this final push to legislate the ban and um, what has been promised to the family? Yeah, so the family has been promised that the bill would be passed. It still has unanimous um, support from all sides of Parliament. There's absolutely no reason that it should be delayed, and it's just about whether um, Fella's life is a, a priority. It's about whether his legacy and the fight of his family um, is um, respected and that these promises are kept and that um, spithoods need to be banned by Fella's bill, um, and that has to happen today. And so um, we're not sure what the delay is about. Um, we know that it needs to happen right now. We need everyone to get on board. There's an email action. You can email the Attorney-General, um, Vicky Chapman, and call on her to put Fella's bill to b- vote today. If you head to um, Fella's Facebook page, um, which is... Um, just, uh, facebook.com slash justice for Fella. And if you follow along in Twitter on the hashtag, um, hashtag ban spithoods, hashtag justice for Fella, there's also a, um, we're also asking people to call Vicky Chapman's office today. So you can call her on 0882071723 and demand that Fella's bill be passed today. Yeah, I think. Um, it is it is really urgent to to get this done, and I saw that uh, Fella's sibling Latoya had uh, had posted today that the uh, that there's been a commitment to to read the or to table the bill at 12 p.m. today. Um, but there's obviously time before that uh, for people, you know, to get on the phones, get on the emails, and really push to make sure this happens. Yeah, and I think. Um it's really important to hear the voices of the family and to understand that they have been fighting for this for five years and the toll that it takes on them. And um, just to um, leave you with some words from the family, um, which were read out when the bill was put to the upper house. Um, in their statement, they said, Wayne Fellow Morrison's death was um, preventable and it speaks to the multitude of ongoing issues of incarceration and control over Aboriginal people that this parliament has the power to resolve and it's always had to resolve. Um, and that he he leaves behind his daughter, his niece and his nephews who will one day read about the historic event when the Parliament of South Australia decided to legislate the ban on spithoods. The first step while overdue is the right one. And so, yeah, I just really urge everyone to get behind the campaign today. And, um, yeah, we hope to see this done. We hope to see this as a step towards justice for Fella. Of course. And um, to listeners, all eyes on South Australian Parliament today. And we really encourage people to support the push to make sure that they do the right thing and keep their promise to Fella's family. Thank you so much, Roxy. Thank you.
And that was a conversation with Roxy Moore, who's a Noongar woman and member of the Band Spithoods campaign, who spoke with us about the South Australian government's delay with legislating the ban on Spithoods via the Statutes Amendment Spithood Prohibition Bill, otherwise known as Fellows Bill, in line with campaigning by the family of Wiradjuri, Wurrungu and Kokatha man, Wayne Fella Morrison. And Fella's family has been waiting, as, as Roxy said, for five long years um, for even a modicum of justice. So even though... The coronial inquest, you know, there were a lot of disappointments there. There is an opportunity for the South Australian Parliament in their last sitting day of the year to do something about this. And again, you can find out more information about how to support this final push to get uh, the ban legislated by heading to Facebook uh, and going to Justice for Fella on Facebook. But also you can find more information on Twitter by following the hashtags legislate the ban, ban spit hoods and justice for Fella. So I think we're coming up to to time on the show. Um, it's been a big one today, and I think it's really important to to sort of end this with with an action that everybody can can take and something to keep an eye on for today at least. But maybe we'll go through what we've talked about today. Yeah, so just briefly, uh, we spoke with Pan Karanikolas, a PhD candidate at La Trobe University and a board member of Women with Disability Victoria. And Pan uh, spoke about the impacts of ableist higher education policy and the implications of um, the introduction of the job-ready graduate package for disabled and chronic students with chronic illness. We then spoke with Professor Sandy O'Sullivan, who is a Wiradjuri transgender non-binary person. They're a 2020-2024 ARC Future Fellow with a project titled Saving Lives, Mapping the Influence of Indigenous LGBTIQ plus Creative Artists, and they joined us to talk about trans representation. Yeah, and then after that, we heard an interview that I did earlier this week with Associate Professor Chelsea Watago, who's a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman and whose work attends to race in the production of health inequalities. And Chelsea's a founding member of Inalawangara, which is an Indigenous Community Development Association within her community and is also a director of the Institute for Collaborative Race Research. And of course, Chelsea joined me to speak about her new book, Another Day in the Colony, which has been published by the University of Queensland Press. And then we spoke with Alex Kakafikas, a longtime activist and 3CR broadcaster, as well as a member of the Solidarity and Defence Fund, who joined us to talk about the fund and the importance of building movement infrastructure. And finally, as you heard, we were joined by Roxy Moore, a Noongar woman and member of the Band Spithoods campaign, who spoke with us about the South Australian government's delay in legislating the ban of Spithoods via Fellas Bill in line with campaigning by the family of Wayne Fella Morrison. And once again, you can head to their social media, looking at Wayne Fella Morrison on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, to find out how you can push for that last, um, that last push to get the bill passed in the last sitting week. Um, of South Australian Parliament. And then finally, just a reminder for listeners that um, this Friday at 8.30pm at the Jam Factory, 500 Chapel Street, South Yarra, there will be a protest, No Pride in Apartheid, to disrupt Melbourne Queer Film Festival's screening of the Israeli film The Swimmer. And, and I, I think that yeah. is it for this big show this morning. Yes, and we'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.